The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and opera and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today's guest is my dear friend and colleague, Nova Thomas. Nova enjoyed a career as an internationally acclaimed soprano singing in Hong Kong, Mexico City, and throughout Europe in the United States, performing a wide array of operatic heroines. If you name a soprano in a Puccini, a Verdi, or a Mozart opera, I bet Nova performed that role. In her second act, Nova is one of the most sought after voice professionals in the country. She's currently professor of voice at the prestigious Shepherd School of Music at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and is an artist teacher at so many festivals, it's even hard to name them all, but I wanna mention in particular the Santa Fe Opera, where I spend my summers. And of course, we are so fortunate to have her at the Utah Opera as a member of our resident artist faculty. She has worked wonders with our singers and we have enjoyed seeing her regularly on Zoom using a wide array of microphones and other recording devices. And it's just been so great to see her face on our screen. We look forward to welcoming her back to Utah in person. But for now, we welcome her to the podcast where she's going to discuss with us the Fox system, which is a very technical way of classifying operatic voices. So Nova, after that long introduction, thank you so much for joining us. I am thrilled to be with you both. Thank you for having me. Great to see you, Nova. So I think most people are familiar with the basic choral voice types, which are soprano, alto, tenor, bass. But there are several other gradations within each of those voice types, aren't there? So can you describe the Fox system in general for us? How old is it? What is it really? And what's the point of all that? <laughs> well, we're trying to we're trying to herd cats here in a fox system and trying to bring an organization to voice categories and styles and genres of repertoire. There are, for example, if we just look at sopranos, there is a lyric coloratura. Think Beverly Seals. There is a dramatic coloratura. Think Joan Sutherland and those wicked queens of the night. There is a lyric soprano who sings most of the, you know, right in the middle repertoire. There is a lyrico spinto who sings the heavier Italian roles, Verdi and Puccini and some Verismo roles. And then there is the dramatic um, soprano that we associate with the more Germanic heroines. And the Wagner roles are certainly iconic examples of that style and gravity of singing. And there is the soubrette, which is neither coloratura or lyric, but is this gorgeous soprano that the voice sits high and sings in a beautiful line. And so just in the sopranos, we have those six types. And there is repertoire that belongs to, to, to these types. In the mezzos, you have a dramatic mezzo, a lyric mezzo, and then a contralto. With tenors, we have lyric tenors, dramatic tenors, counter tenor, made very popular recently in all of these song competition shows on television. And uh, then we have the baritone, lyric and dramatic, 
we have the bass baritone, and then we have a bass. So this goes on and on. It's a it's a complicated and uh, lengthy list of voice types. I love when I was um, digging into this. Technically, I love that um, Falk is a German word that means drawer, like a chest of drawers. And so you have to open the drawer and figure out which one you fit in, right? Because <laughs> you didn't sing all of those. You weren't all six of the soprano types, were you? Well, I wasn't the soubrette, but the, the rest of them, I think I may have covered in my crazy and blessed uh, career. I know in one season, I was singing Daughter of the Regiment, which is associated with lyric coloraturas. And then I sang Traviata, and that season I also sang Tosca. And so that covered at least three different types. And Mimi, thankfully, stayed with me my entire career. That's more a lyric, lyrical spinto. And then I even ventured into things like I had a Turandot. I did a, a, a Turandot, believe it or not. Uh, and most of my repertoire was truly in the Verdian heroines, which in one opera, for example, in La Traviata, people say the first act belongs to a lyric coloratura. The second act belongs to a full lyric. And then the third act belongs to another type. And so there are roles that span these kind of vocal expressions. I think that's um, too micromanaged, to be honest. But one could certainly argue that those things apply. Nova, you're, you've given me the perfect segue into the first of my many ignorant questions. Uh, so tell me, is this something that singers can choose for themselves? Can you decide what part of the Fox system you'll be in? Is it something that evolves over time? Can you change it if you don't like it? Or is it just <laughs> something that is given to you by the gods? Well, I think Mother Nature does take care of a lot of it. But the human voice develops as the body develops. And it goes through the same kind of changes. We don't begin to discuss types of voices until a certain age. After, you know, boy, after puberty, things start to settle in a little bit. But then voices grow and the as the body grows and hormonal changes, age all of these things affect the, the body and, and the voice and uh, or all of these things that affect the body do in fact affect the voice. And so there is uh, evolution and change just indigenous to every singer. And then ultimately, I think the more interesting questions are the more nuanced ones, which um, say, you know, which explore what kind of repertoire you're drawn to. I always ask my students where it is they feel they have something to say. Now, I'm not looking at a coloratura who might say to me, I have the heart of a Tosca. And, you know, probably ne'er the twain shall meet. But it does start to matter what, what means something to you and where it is that you feel something uh, you have something significant to say. So there are the most basic considerations, the range, what is the highest note in a voice? What is the lowest note in a voice? Then there is the issue of tessitura, an Italian word that literally means texture 
or where most of the pitches lie, where a singer is most comfortable. A soprano can be comfortable in a high tessitura or not so much. And so there's the highest note of a role, the lowest note of a role, the tessitura of a role, uh, how the role is partnered in the orchestra. What are the expectations for sheer volume and resonance as it compares and pairs with the orchestration of a particular role. There are demands regarding dynamics, regarding speed and flexibility, and the demands of music uh, kind of gather themselves in certain ways where a certain voice type does or does not relate to that. So demands uh, begin to relate to skill sets within an individual voice. And that I feel determines type. And then I always look forward to the, as I stated earlier, the more nuanced considerations of color and where the voice truly has something to say. Have you ever had to work with a singer who was certain that they wanted to sing a certain type of repertoire and you had to sort of make them understand that it wasn't where their voice was gonna go? I have. As a matter of fact, and I think there are, I, I deal with students that are that are graduate students. Most of my students fall in their late, their, their 20s, mid to late 20s, and some a little beyond that in their early 30s. And so that's a type of a time when the body is in great flux and, and skill sets, more is expected of certain skill sets. And so it's a hard growing period in many, many ways. And so what I'd rather do rather than inquire or rather than encourage a student to force themselves into one category and stay there, I just try to keep relating a student's skills and abilities to the demands of a certain style of music and uh, just encourage every singer that I come in contact with that there is repertoire where they uniquely have something important to say, a place where they fit, a place and a style that they have an imagination for, as well as a set of abilities for. And I think once you expose um, an aspirational singer, someone who really wants to do something important, once you expose them to a, a repertoire for which they are enormously successful musically, where you point up the demands of a page and say, my word, look at how you answer those. You are so unique in being able to answer these demands. Then looking at it that way is certainly a more positive approach in, than looking at another page and saying, you don't match this. <laughs> but there are times when sometimes I will just play a recording and ask them to listen to the orchestra. And uh, that is a, a great divider <laughs> for a lot of people, just where the voice can, can be resonant as a member of that orchestra. So Nova, I mean, to somebody listening to this who doesn't know the opera world very well, this might sound a lot like typecasting which you hear about with actors and people from the stage. And I suspect you get students who, you know, want to be Siegfried, but they're really a character singer. And you have to make that very clear to them at the beginning, and that might follow them through their career. So 
Do you find singers feel trapped by this classification system? Is it something that singers sometimes feel like they have a hard time breaking free of if they want to? Absolutely. And uh, they do. I mean, fortunately, there is such a breadth of stunning repertoire for all voice types. Um, usually the case is that a singer can make their peace with where they land. And because there's, a, a as I said, a breadth of, of repertoire to address all sorts of interests. But then there are certain roles. I have friends that have, that have debuted as the queen of the night and been a terrific queen of the night. And you can build a beautiful home and a beautiful life <laughs> on the queen of the night. But then inevitably they complain about not being considered for other things. Because once you, you know, once the world finds a good one, the world wants to use that one. And, you know, as you so um, aptly point out, our interests are much more varied usually than that kind of micromanagement. It used to be in the 70s and 80s that the Fach system, especially um, embraced in Germany and, and in other parts of Europe as well, was pretty rigid. And you couldn't have a role that fit in one Fach and then another role that didn't fit in another. That didn't go in a manager's press packet. That didn't fit. Things needed to be neat and tidy and as organized as our wonderful German colleagues enjoyed them being. I'm glad even when my career in the late 80s and early 90s was in Germany, that was more relaxed. I was doing Mimi and Constanza in Inführung. So, and those are very different roles. One's a lyric lyrico spinto role and the other is a dramatic coloratura role. But I was able to do both of those things, even though they and I were much more comfortable <laughs> with my life as me, me. I think one thing that we haven't even touched on, too, is uh, a size of an opera house, too. That affects what you can sing. It absolutely does. And the size of the orchestra. But the American system, when opera became really popular in America, it was quite something. It changed things dramatically. For example, in Germany, Köln is one of the largest or the larger houses. And I think that seats 1,800. And of course, at the Metropolitan, we're at 4,200. In some of those big Masonic temples that have hosted opera in our country, they're up to 5,000 seats. In Detroit, I'm thinking of, where I was able to do with Dame Joan her Farewell Normus. And that was in a, 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 a theatrical setting of 5,000 plus seats. And so the American system itself took opera and made it as only we Americans can, the largest and most glamorous version of itself. And with that size theater came a different expectation for sound and a different need for sheer decibel levels. So that did, Carol, that did make a big difference. And someone that can't sing Violetta in an American house could be perfect for it in one of our European houses. I am um, really proud of the fact here at Rice at the Shepherd School of Music, we have a new opera house that is truly state of the art. 
And it was designed incredibly mindfully for the training of young voices. So there is this beautiful horseshoe and there are three tiers above the main floor. I mean, it's quite spectacular. The horseshoe design, a pit, it is what a classic opera house looks like. And so you have the big orchestra and you have the, the balcony and the next tier and then a full orchestra level but it was designed to only seat between seven and 800. So it's safe for a young voice to train in that typical theatrical setting, but with a prudent capacity so that they're not having to push or strain to um, achieve certain results at such a vulnerable age. You know, I'm glad you brought up your students one more time, Nova, because before we let you go, I want to circle back to them. Because I'm sure, you know, part of your teaching is preparing them to leave that very sanctified space at Rice and getting them out into the world and singing for other casting professionals. Do, are you choosing repertoire that's specifically meant to lead them in a certain direction in terms of Fock, or is it more about trying to protect them from going in the wrong direction in terms of Fock, so that they don't do things they no, shouldn't No, I prefer the former. Yeah. I don't think many of these categorizations have been based upon a person's limitations rather than a person's abilities. And I find that in a lot of teaching, they steer a student towards something. And this is prudent in the early stages where they will be guaranteed success. But then to define someone there and say, this is what you are, more often than not, it's, a ba it's based upon what they can't do rather than what they can do. Carol can certainly speak to this. Every fall is a very dramatic time in our business. And we have the sacred five arias where it's ridiculous. Every singer has to have their five arias, one in each language, uh, certainly one that's contemporary, fast, slow, this variety of representation that needs to make sense and hang within one fog. So those that audition season and the way our singers present themselves in the world needs to make sense. It needs to make sense for the industry because so many of our wonderful casting directors are not just musicians. They're looking at a visual, they're looking at all sorts of things, and we need to put clean pictures of our singers in front of them. When I was coming along, it was much more dominated by people that knew voices really intimately. So they could look at my list, for example, and recognize, ah, that's her future tense aria. That's where this voice is going. And that's just not the case in the marketplace these days. We need for things to fit together for the most part. And I could fuss about it all day long, but my job as a teacher and a mentor is to accept that that's what the marketplace is requesting and for us to be prudent in what we present. So in choosing those five arias, by the way, that can change every six months when you're in your 20s and early 30s, they can change all the time. So this year's perfect package might not even be next spring's package and certainly not next fall's package. 
So it has to evolve that way. And uh, as I said, I try to encourage though beyond the parameters of what makes good sense and employ a student's imagination for their own self and, and the repertoire, again, where they have something unique to say. Well, Carol, you can address this. Do you find that a dilemma? Well, you know, I think it is a dilemma. It's always a question that comes up every fall when we're getting ready for those. And like you say, you know, something that works in this fall may not be the perfect thing six months later at this very uh, fluid time. But what I love is, in particular for you and me, and let's just, you know, celebrate for a second what a great team we are in choosing and guiding <laughs> these singers here we just love we think alike and we go with the same directions and i think that's one of the things is singers need to get a group young singers need to get a group behind them that can really help them and that they can trust to guide them in these early steps i love that and we are a good team and i'm grateful for it and i am just um I can't say enough good. And as you mentioned earlier, I'm blessed to, to be associated with several companies and I love the work. Um, Utah is uniquely devoted to mentoring their singers. I wish singers knew how many conversations we had about them, <laughs> you know, and how carefully, and certainly in your case, Carol, how lovingly, uh, you nurture those singers and we consider what might be best for them. There's a way that we explore and develop their instruments. And then there's a way that we step off that fabulous helix and think, wait a minute, we need to polish now and get ready for these auditions. Uh, so there's material that develops, there's material that inspires, there's material that launches the glorious next step. And that's not always the same material that Absolutely. you're going to present this fall that needs to be polished and needs to make sense to a producer and casting director. So um, there are ways that we develop and ways that we present and perform. And Carol said something so important. Every singer ultimately is the executive producer of their own talent. And in our, in this decade in which we work so closely with them, we try to nurture certain independence and help them together a sense of self. So much about life is evolving in that decade at the very time their voice is trying to find its own way. So it's a fragile, uh, albeit a wonderful and fruity um, time. But there are the ways that we explore and then there's what we what we choose to help them present at any given time. And so it's um, it's uh, it's it needs to be managed. And at the same time, you're polishing over here. You never want a, uh, a young singer to lose their imagination for additional possibilities and additional versions of, of themselves. One of the things I so want my singers to develop is a sense of curiosity about them on their own selves, to discover on a week by week, month by month, year by year basis, where it is that their voice works the best and where it might not. And sometimes those answers are, I need to go get these skill sets to do that repertoire. I need to develop these skill sets a bit better. 
And sometimes it's, I need to step away from that. Of all the things I love and find interesting, I don't do that one thing particularly well. Aren't we lucky that there are thousands of roles over here that address what you do well? So it's, it's uh, as Carol so beautifully says, it's fluid. And it's fascinating. And, you know, we could, we could do a four-part series on this topic, but I think we'll uh, wrap it up about here. I just want to say that your songbirds, Nova calls all of her students her songbirds, are so lucky to have you on their team. We ask every single one of our opera guests this, and so you're not going to get away from it. What subject, real or imagined, would you think would make a perfect opera? I think surviving the past two years. <laughs> I think that, you know, first of all, I think for better or worse, we're going to see a lot of Boehms and a lot of Traviatas that where tuberculosis is replaced by COVID. So I think we're going to see that. I would hope that we would look to um, the victories in the past two years and how we as a country, how we as families, how we as communities, how we as organizations, and how we as individuals have navigated these unprecedented waters. So I certainly think that um, this is the story that leaps to mind because it's the story I'm living, you're living, that we're all living mm -hmm. and gratefully one day at the time surviving, not without great cost. But, but we will somehow, not all of us, but as a populace and as a country, I know we will walk through this time. Um, and I think that's going to be a story to tell. I think the um, Black Lives Matter story is enormous during this time. I look forward to it finding a gravitas mm -hmm. on the stage. I think our relationships with border issues, our own culture is offering so many stories as Italy did to Verdi, as all societies have to their imaginative writers and composers offered stories that deserve to be told that ultimately speak to the incredible quality of the human spirit and what it will continue to do and how it continues to not merely survive, but thrive. And so I think we are blessed to live in a time that is offering us many, many stories. Nova, those are beautiful thoughts. I have to say to you and Carol, I'm not only jealous of your jobs today, I'm jealous of your friendship. I've never been happier to be a third wheel in my life. Oh, Thank sorry. you. <laughs> Thank you both so much for letting me tune into this podcast. Um, and Nova, more importantly, thank you for being a guest of ours today. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. It's been a great pleasure. I'm sorry you've asked me about something that I care a great deal about. So you didn't get to say very much at all. Please ask me again. And I promise not to talk so much. Well, I have, you can't tell because of my mask, but I've, you've had my rapt attention for this last half hour. So thank you so much. Thank you. And much love to all of you in the beautiful state of Utah. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. 
And if you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.